and gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Listeners, this is John Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, come by, check us out, kick the tires, light the fires. Um, and that's not necessarily a uh, Top Gun reference because I have not seen it yet. Which I think, if I go more, uh, even a few more days, uh, David French might um, um, might quit because he is uh, he is the leader of a. Uh, of a of the Top Gun fan club inside of the Dispatch, and um, and you should see his Slack posts about it. Uh, but we'll leave that for another time. So um, uh, I'm a little off guard this morning um, because we were supposed to do today's the first Friday of the month. We we're supposed to do the drive time thing, but for reasons I still can't get into, life is just very complicated these days. And uh, this week. Uh, we just couldn't make it work, um, for all sorts of reasons. So we are not getting rid of the drive time thing. We'll try and do it next week if, if schedule permits. Um, but, uh, I figured we would just solve things by not solve things, but solve the scheduling hassles that we had this week. We had a podcast guest cancel on us. We had all sorts of other things happen. Um, and so I'm just doing another solo. So, you know. Uh, you know, go put your fist through a plate glass window if you really, really wanted to hear the dulcet tones of uh, Guy Denton and and Ryan Brown. Um, so where to begin? I don't know. Um, I'm again doing this really early in the morning. We're going to do the dispatch podcast after this, so I'll try to avoid a lot of the rancor punditry. I did think it was interesting the responses to the Wednesday G file. Um, by the way, I've been meaning to bring this up for a really, really, really long time, and I just never do. Um, uh, if you search for like G file on Twitter or often on the internet, if you do it G dash file, you know, which obviously is shorthand for it, the Goldberg file, a name that Rich Lowry and I spent literally minutes coming up with um, almost 25 years ago. And uh, we went through the Goldberg factor, Goldberg variations, um, and a few other things, and and settled upon the Goldberg file. And I've been stuck with that that name ever since. I don't I don't hate it or anything, but um, you know, it's just not the most. It wasn't the most considered thing. Anyway, we I didn't know at the time, and I didn't know until fairly recently um, that. I guess G file is a chess term and I assume I haven't really looked it up either. I assume it's like referring to a row in, you know, like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, um, on the board, the G file, like the G lane or something like that. Um, but it's funny if you like search for G file, sometimes you'll find all these things that are about chess. And I'm always like weird. I didn't write about chess. Um, Anyway, so I, the reactions to the G file this week were uh, the Wednesday G file, which is for members only. And if you were a member, you could go check out. Um, I did it weird. I set up this is my only real complaint. I have no problem with people being uh, un- not charmed by it. Um, that is often the case with when I go weird on stuff um, or self indulgent on stuff. Um, uh, 
have zero problem with people saying, hey, this wasn't my cup of tea, because that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do on a in response to um, a meditation on I Dream of Genie and how it relates to um, various supernatural entities and our notions of the supernatural and how it relates to our own personal psychology, all done in the service of just trying to get to a pun that I've tried to get out of my head for a couple of years now. Um, so like, I get it. Someone says, hey, this really wasn't worth my time or this isn't for me. I try to warn people up front about it. Um, only thing that bothers me is when people don't heed the warning and or ignore the warning or act as if I hadn't warned them um, when I in fact had and said, you know, when I say, hey, look, I'm not, this is, I, you know, sometimes I show rather than tell, but I think it's pretty clear if you're familiar with my ooze that I don't, um, that, that it's going to be sort of, you know, self-indulgent stuff. And I got into all sorts of like the etymology of word stuff. I, I find that stuff really interesting. I find it fun to write about. It is my way of avoiding sort of writer's blockish issues. Um, I think I've talked about this on here before. I don't actually, everyone's got their own definitions of writer's block. I think writer's block affects different people differently because they define it differently. My way of dodging writer's block um, is my sort of belief that writer's block doesn't exist, but fear of writer's block does. And, um, you know, sort of like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man in Ghostbusters, um, if you fear it enough and you think about it, you can it can materialize. And so I, the way I get around, it's just my own personal thing, the way I get around sort of writer's block or just exhaustion with the politics of the moment um, is by just sort of, uh, you know, starting to type and seeing where my fingers take me kind of thing. And anyway, some people liked it. I appreciate it. Thank you for the positive feedback. Um, some people hated it. Um, uh, thank you for the constructive criticism, let's just say. Uh, but I do think there's a real point there. It's hidden like the 18th, 19th paragraph that, um, and I don't want to, I don't want to get too morose or melancholy or into the weeds or any of this kind of stuff. But, you know, it's for people who didn't read it, you know, part of the point was um, that we have gone from sort of blaming the supernatural for all sorts of things to um, relying on almost purely either sociological or psychological or genetic explanations for everything. And for the most part, look, I think the, the pivot towards science and modernity is girl is, is good. Even if I think the sort of um, the disenchantment of the world, as Max Weber would put it, um, came at some costs um, in terms of making the world seem like a richer and more um, fascinating place. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty consistent on this. I was, I, I was decidedly against the lifting of the curse of the Bambino for the Red Sox. Um, because I just like the idea of living in a world where curses last. Um, I like, you know, having a little bit of, of magic in the world. Um, and anyway, but my point is, is that you know, the, the, the one significant point in there is that it used to, you know, for example, the phrase genius, which is sort of pivotal to this whole genie gin thing that I wrote about. Um, 
the conception in the West used to be, the word used to mean basically an inspirational spirit that came to us. Like a flash of genius was when some sort of poltergeisty, you know, pixie, will-o'-the-wisp, banshee kind of creature, muse would come to us and breathe inspiration. And, you know, inspire has a lot of the same root stuff with um, spirit and aspire and even perspiration and, um, and uh, what do you call it? Uh, respiration and all that. And, um, uh, and it wasn't until fairly recently, you know, recently in the etymological sense that we stopped thinking of a genius as being them some sort of external supernatural agent on our shoulder um, to being an innate quality um, sort of the difference between having a genius, which meant like this sort of, you know, Aladdin like creature breathing inspiration into you to being a G a, a genius um, that the, the quality of, of genius was innate to the person itself. And um, that seems like a generally fine transformation. Although I bet you there were some downsides to that too. Um, seems to me that there's a better, I, I don't know, I haven't really thought this through, but there's a certain kind of um, human equality quotient to this idea that every now and then people are just visited by um, a genius inspiring pixie that, you know, gives us cool insights and then leaves um, rather than thinking there are just certain people who are of innate superior intelligence at all times than us. Um, but I am not going to go down that rabbit hole right now because I'm just thinking about it now. Anyway, the point is, is that I do think that f given just the way the human mind is, or the brain is evolved and is constructed, um, when we internalize uh, all our shortcomings as products of our, you know, innate character, uh, in an age where we celebrate authenticity and being true to yourself, it just becomes easier to say, well, this is who I am. You know, I'm someone who, you know, bites the heads off of gerbils or whatever. Um, rather than in the old days, there was this conception that evil spirits, forces, um, inspirations, uh, were seducing us to go in a direction that we understood to be wrong. And there's something about modernity that says, well, if it's innate, uh, it's sort of the naturalistic, naturalistic fallacy applied to pop psychology. There's something about the, the, the modern mind that likes to think that, well, if I was born this way, um, there's no point in me fighting this. And, um, and I think that like for some people, it might just be easier, you know, like, you know, it used to be, again, as I wrote in the G file, the concept of personal demons used to be more literal than figurative and that there were, you know, there were, there were demons tormenting us. And, um, when it becomes sort of psychologized as sort of these, uh, misfired subroutines in our own psychology or in our genes, um, or for some root cause, it just wouldn't surprise me if it turns out that psychologically it's a harder thing to fight that, um, you know, that kind of, uh, bad influence than if you could actually 
conceive of these things as outside forces saying or tempting us to do bad things. And I'm not trying to go back to a world where we have um, exorcisms and all that kind of stuff all over the place um, again. And I'm not trying to sort of invest the world with you know, vast amounts of supernatural forces or anything like that. Um, but I do that again, I think something is lost, um, and all that I have, did any of that make sense? I wish I had someone I could look to who could either nod or shake their head other than my cat. Um, anyway, moving on, uh, I really should have taken some notes. Oh, speaking of taking notes. So I watched last night, uh, with the fair Jessica, uh, this Netflix, uh, Norm Macdonald special that was at times really funny, but also poignant and interesting in all sorts of ways. Norm Macdonald apparently wanted to, he knew he was very sick and he wanted to sort of get this material for his next special um, in the can as it were, but he couldn't do it in front of an audience. So he basically just sits very much like I'm doing right now uh, in front of a microphone with some headphones on. I don't have headphones on. Um, and does his entire basically hour of give or take of stand up? It's a little less than an hour because you got to factor in when you're doing it live, there'd be joke, there'd be laughs, and that would lengthen things out. It's a fact that I have to sometimes remember when I do funny speeches um, for like AI and stuff. Um, so, anyway, uh, Norm MacDonald does this whole, you know, whole set. Um, just straight to a camera right in front of his face. And, and then afterwards they had, um, David Letterman, uh, um, Dave Chappelle, um, Conan O'Brien, um, Adam Sandler, you know, and a couple others, uh, just sort of sitting in the basement, sort of having just watched the thing, reminiscing about McDonald and, talking about the routine. Uh, I thought Letterman was a little, yeah, just this, just, just the over the line into dickish a couple times. But, um, but it was, uh, it was really, really interesting. Anyway, what was interesting to me is as someone who's like literally sitting here with nothing to read from and, um, and no notes, uh, but who, you know, I, I am not a comedian. I never claimed to be a comedian. I tried, you know, i as I've told, talked about many times, there was a time when I was gaining a reputation for being a conservative humorist. And I zagged away from that really, really hard because I did not want to be known as a humorist. Um, the expectations on, on humorists is that they always have to write funny. And sometimes I don't want to write funny. And that when they try to write funny, they always have to be funny or you don't eat. And that's not me. But, um, I can do a funny speech. I can do a funny speech in the sense that like for a nerdy, eggheady policy kind of pundit guy, um, um, I, I say this, I'm not trying to brag, but I'm, I'm one of the funnier people um, when I do that stuff. And that's why I get, I used to get booked to do a lot of that kind of stuff, sort of mix of, you know, tell a joke and make a point kind of stuff. And uh, but wouldn't, come across that way from this conversation right now anyway so i uh uh it was fascinating to me to listen to him do 
purely prepared material in front of a microphone with no audience where, first of all, he, it was scripted to make it sound like, um, it was free association. He was like, how do you know, he did, he did a lot of the sort of tropes that I do on here and I do in the G file. Um, I was telling my wife last night, the way he kept saying anyway, um, is something I'm constantly on guard on in the G file because I, I use it as sort of a crutch and a way to get back to the thing that I just went on a two paragraph tangent from. And I probably shouldn't be breaking the fourth wall on some of these things. And I find I fall, I fall into it in speeches and I find I fall, fall into it on this podcast sometimes. Although I, I will, again, be, it's, it's a much more sincere one because again, I am not doing anything from some prepared notes. Uh, but the way he did it was really, really fascinating to me to see how this kind of thing is constructed. Cause I've always thought about how do you do, you know, the comedy stuff? Um, you know, what is the, how much of that stuff is, um, ad libbed versus prepared. And obviously if he were actually on stage, he would do it he would feed off the audience and probably go into different directions. And Chappelle talked about that a little bit about how this, he would tell certain jokes. The scaffolding was always the same, but the, as he put it, the lyrics would sometimes change. And I can totally see that, but, um, it really is worth watching. It's, it's, it's annoying at first. I really didn't like these sort of straight into the camera, no laugh track, no audience kind of thing. But once you kind of get what it was and what they were, what he was doing, and then you see the follow-up conversations, it's really, really worth um, worth the time. If you think Norm Macdonald is funny, and I think Norm Macdonald was was hilarious, and um, and I'm also just sort of fascinated. You know, this is a point that Conan O'Brien made a bunch of times after he died. He made it again in this Netflix thing. It's fascinating to me how much of the wacky, weird, odd syntax, weird mispronunciation of stuff. Apparently, that's all really deliberate and, um, intentional. Um, I guess deliberate and intentional are synonyms, so I shouldn't say deliberate and intentional. Um, but they're, they're, they're deliberate and planned, um, you know, which is a different word anyway, uh, worth watching. The other thing I sort of less worth watching, I'm thinking about maybe writing about this, but probably not. This is, this is a perfect example of why I'm right. And Steve Hayes is wrong. Um, I do think the dispatch needs some kind of, uh, group blog type thing, sort of like the, uh, the corner from national review, which I'm very proud to have been the creator of. Um, uh, because there are a whole bunch of things I'd like to sort of, write on for 300 words, 400 words at most, um, that aren't worth writing a column about that aren't worth sort of, unless I'm doing some sort of potpourri G file, there's just no place for me to sort of opine on them other than podcasts like this. And, um, Steve doesn't like the idea of blogs cause he thinks he likes blogs. He likes the corner and all that kind of stuff. But his argument is that, um, it would it would be too tempting for it's where I should say one of his arguments is that we don't do hot takes right um, and we we have a very simple news flow where we don't post things throughout the day we're trying really hard as a brand not to waste our readers time I agree with all that 
And I think that's an important part of our brand. But if you go in the comment, if you look in the comments section, we have people um, commenting all day long. And I think if there was some sort of forum, sort of a public facing or at least member facing Slack channel kind of group blog thing where, um, you know, me and David and some others could sound off on some things and discuss some things. I think, I think, uh, our readers, our, our members would like it. Um, anyway, how did I get in this? I got on this because I watched this, we own the city, uh, HBO series, which is apparently based on, um, um, some very good book uh, about the corruption of the Baltimore Police Department. And uh, there are times when it's really compelling. I think the acting is really often really very solid. Um, um, it stars, I'm going to look up his name. Forgive my, I never remember this actor's name, but I like him. Um, it stars John Bernthal, who if you remember was in the first few seasons of um, uh, Walking Dead has done a bunch of other stuff since then he was Punisher in the Netflix series anyway I think he's a good actor um, and um, and it, sometimes he's a little over top in his Baltimoreness, but still he's good Jamie Hector who played um uh, Marlo in The Wire and Bosch's partner in the Bosch series. Uh, I, I can't make up my mind about him, about whether or not he's a good actor. Um, if he is a good actor, he has no range because he basically is just the same guy in everything I have seen with, you know, a few bells and whistles. Um, anyway, it's a fun show to watch in, for a bunch of different reasons. And like, like there are a whole bunch of actors from the wire who have big parts, but they're also a bunch who have like very small, like sort of cameo parts. And it's kind of a fun kind of where's Waldo kind of exercise. Um, and having lived and gone to school in Baltimore, um, I, and I have loved the wire. There's a lot of that stuff that I, you know, it's very compelling. The problem with the show is it's basically a Washington Post op-ed over like six episodes. Um, I cannot remember. I asked Pod this on text message this morning, but he selfishly hasn't responded yet. Um, I am sure that in theater or in dramaturgy or whatever you want to call it, the, the sort of the study of, of drama, um, there's a, a word for this, these kinds of characters. Um, Sort of like in, um, hold on, I'm text, turning off all my texts. Um, I'm sure there's a word or a phrase for, for this kind of technical term for these kinds of characters who are just there to elicit exposition, right? To, um, as a sort of, like, like the narrators in 1930s works project, you know, uh, New Deal was it WPA where the artists did these incredibly didactic, almost sort of Soviet style um, uh, theater where it's long extended, um, you know, pedagogic explanations of public policy issues 
straight into the veins of the audience. Um, and this thing, this We Own the City thing, is six episodes of this. There is like no character development in this. I mean, are very, very little. We get a little sense about how Bernthal gets corrupted um, on the job, but not much. It kind of feels like he's just basically, it requires two conversations and all of a sudden um, he's a dirty cop too. And instead it's just, and this is why I say it's like a Washington Post op-ed. Um, it's just this, one anecdote after another of terrible things that I'm sure are all true, you know, because this, this purports to be based on a true story on a book that was a journalistic book. It's as far as I can tell, all these guys deserve to go to jail. I'm not complaining about any of that. I'm not complaining about it's, it's philosophical take or it's moral take on police brutality. Police brutality is bad. You know, fine. I agree with all that. I just mean it's art. It's really two dimensional and lame in a lot of parts. This character that plays the role of sort of eliciting political opinions is a um and i don't know if this person actually existed or if this is sort of the um artistic construct for the thing but it's this black woman who's for works for the civil rights division of doj and she's doing no criminal justice investigation at all she just is sort of doing fact finding to understanding why baltimore is so messed up and she just goes around talking to dis different people and responding in just overtly political ways for the audience to imbibe political positions without any nuance whatsoever. And they're all of these sort of just sort of like, you know, I'm sure Jen Rubin was just applauding at one scene after another because they're all these like foreshadowing, like really ham-fisted foreshadowing about how Donald Trump will close down civil rights investigations for four or eight years if he's elected because they do all these flashbacks forward and backwards in time stuff. And um, everyone's, or all the bad guys are for the most part cartoonish. And when they explain why they made, they did bad things or whatever, it's, it's almost, again, it's, it's very kind of almost Soviet where they start explaining, you know, the systemic things that caused me to make this decision to take this money and here's an example of why police brutality hurts innocent people. And it's, um, it's so didactic. And so it almost feels like, um, cause it's made by the same guys who made the wire, Pelicanos and Simon. Um, it feels like they're just doing penance for casting, for depicting police as morally, um, complicated and, um, even, uh, redeemable and noble people. Cause there's very little of that in this, in this it's, um, um, I mean, the, there are good cops in it, but they choose not to work, um, and do real policing because the system is so corrupt. And anyway, it just feels really ham handed, ham fisted. And I'll leave the rest of it for glop. If there's any rest of it to tell, um, Yesterday, we had at the American Enterprise Institute our State of the Institute address. Um, yes, we do that, and it was called that, and it was just sort of all-hands meeting for everybody um, who works for AI. Obviously, not everybody can make it to these things, but uh, we had a great turnout, a couple hundred people, and it's nice. We, you know, we, we, we celebrate the people who've been there for a long time. We um, acknowledge the incredibly hardworking and, and, and 
really generous and sweet people who work in some of the service areas at AI, you know, who do the, the catering and, and all of that and the security. Um, and we run through the stats about how we're doing and what the future looks like and yada, yada, yada. And I thought that Robert Doerr, president, um, did a really, um, really great job. Obviously it's off the record, so I'm not going to get super into the weeds and all that, but, um, I will just say speaking for myself, um, I remain immensely proud to be associated with AI. I think that as far as conservative institutions in Washington or in the country go, um, without casting any aspersions on any specific other institutions, um, for the purposes of this, <laughs> this conversation, uh, uh, AI's handled itself with more intellectual and moral integrity than, um, than most and equal to any, as far as I can tell. And I want to congratulate Robert, who was not an obvious fit for the job, um, by his own reckoning, you know, by his own admission. Um, uh, he's really, you know, he's really settled into the, the, the best traditions of AI and, um, he's doing a great job, but it was fun to go in part because it meant that a lot of people are in the office and I could catch up with some folks. So I saw Tim Carney and we talked about some things. Um, and, uh, chatted with Yuval as, I, as, as I know, no listener of this podcast is shocked. I like to do. And Adam White, who is wasting away, he's lost so much weight. Um, you know, I found it for him and he can have it back anytime. Uh, um, he had a peeve, a gripe that he wanted to level at me because he claims I am giving short shrift to the richness and nuance of his explanation of what Republicanism is. Now, if you listen to the recent, the last Yuval podcast or the one I just did with Tony Mills, um, Republicanism has nothing to do with the Republican party. Um, it's this concept that is, uh, you know, bandied around by a lot of people means different things, different people will get to that in a second. Um, and, uh, but I made, I've made the point a few times on here and credited Adam, which I guess he now no longer wants credit for, that if you go back and you look at the founding era or even, you know, the sort of glorious revolution era in, in England, when people talk about republicanism or republics, it's contrasted at the time with um, monarchy. And it basically meant, you know, uh, the push towards some version of liberalism or democracy, um, and was not as clearly distinct as many want to make it today, but, you know, but from liberalism, um, and apparently he's got more nuanced views on this and wants to share them at some point. And, um, again, I don't want to, I don't want to like out anybody's plans or anything like this, but apparently a lot of people in my world are now working on this idea of republicanism. What does it mean to be a republic? Not just at AI, at other places too. Um, what does it mean to be a republic? What are the requirements of being a republic? Uh, we talked about this a good deal with, uh, with, with Tony Mills, which I, I highly recommend that podcast um, for those who are into um, uh, sort of intellectual history, eggheadery stuff. And, um, um, and I think it's a really interesting concept. I have not made up my mind on it. Um, or I should put it this way. I have not 
decided whether or not I should change my previously held positions on what people mean or don't mean when they talk about, you know, how America is not a democracy, it's a republic. Um, but there are people doing a lot of interesting new, new work on this and new thinking on this. And so I'm intrigued and I do, I do take Tony Mills points, um, to heart, you know, that Republican theory obviously does go back to ancient Rome and ancient Greece and ha does mean something distinct from liberalism. I think that's fair to say. What's interesting is if, if you go back and you listen to the conversation I had with Yuval, you know, I asked him what he thought about the Francis Fukuyama book and he liked it a lot. He's a big fan of Fukuyama. I'm a big fan of Fukuyama. Um, I think Fukuyama has gotten, um, a lot of wildly undeserved and almost ignorant, uh, criticism about the end of history stuff, which, um, you know, when, when people go, nah, you know, history kept going, um, they're telling on themselves. They're not really landing a blow with Fukuyama. Anyway, Fukuyama's latest book, which I have actually right here, liberalism and its discontents, um, is really interesting and useful. I've talked about it before. I'm not going to get into it again. But Yuval's point was that he thought the one thing that was sort of missing from it was a um, a sort of uh, a counterpoint idea, which he thinks is republicanism, uh, which Yuval thinks is republicanism. And and so I actually had an interesting conversation with Adam about this yesterday, because you know the problem with and I'm just characterizing all this myself. I'm not attributing views to anybody else. Um, uh, you know, the problem with, for the, for the lay person, when you hear, um, that the opposite for want of a better word. And I mean that sincerely, um, sort of the opposing pole, um, of liberalism is republicanism um people's brains understandably go to a wrong place um because we're used to thinking that the opposite of a good thing is a bad thing and this has as much to do with the problem with the word opposite as it does anything else or at least our understanding of the word opposite um and i used to make this point in various forms when I was talking about fascism, when my first book came out in a political sort of sociological, historical, cultural context, um, it is understandable to talk about how communism and fascism are opposites because they hated each other. They were at war with each other. They were seen as the alternative to each cast themselves as the alternative to the other. Um, but that doesn't mean that they were, necessarily very different um you know coke and pepsi are at you know historically um have been at times at war with each other that doesn't make them different and in fact one of the bigger i mean obviously coke is better than pepsi i'm not trying to get into all of that but um they are i think objectively speaking fairly similar products that's all i'm saying and it's also just sort of worth noting that, um, so now I wrote a little bit about this with Adam Smith a couple of weeks ago. Um, Coke and Pepsi actually have a lot of mutual interests 
uh, you know, if everybody starts drinking, uh, everybody starts turning away from sodas, um, that hurts both of them. If smaller soda companies start uh, getting better market share because they're healthier, that's bad for both of them. There are a lot of aligned interests between Coke and Pepsi. Um, and, uh, and that leads to all sorts of corporatist regulatory things. Anyway, that's a conversation for another day. Um, the point I'm trying to make is, is that opposites are not necessarily, um, the way we use opposites and maybe someone will, will point out some obvious word that I'm trying to, <coughs> I'm desperately, you know, trying to conjure in my head and can't, um, opposites are not the reverse of all things, um, that they're uh, oppositional from, right? So, um, and you know, I wrote a whole book about how Soviet communism and, or Bolshevism and Nazism have a lot more similarities than they have differences. Um, or at least the similarities are more important and more interesting in a lot of ways than the differences. And, um, and besides the real, if we're going to use opposite the way people use it, we should talk about liberal democracy being the opposite of totalitarianism, which is, you know, something else. And so when, when people hear that the tension is between the two, the sort of the Hegelian, I'm not a Hegelian, the Hegelian sort of, uh, dynamic is between liberalism as the thesis and, and republicanism as the antithesis, they think it's, you know, orcs versus hobbits, total different worldviews, all that kind of stuff. When in fact, republicanism is very much entrenched in liberalism and liberalism is very much entrenched in, um, uh, republicanism. And, you know, one way to think about this is that, uh, you know, one of the great tensions in the Western tradition and in the liberal tradition and, um, our democratic tradition, whatever tradition you want to call it, uh, our tradition, um, is the tension between liberty and order, right? Because, you need order and you need liberty. And that's why we often talk about ordered liberty. Um, you know, you, you need both the peanut butter and the chocolate to make the peanut butter cup. And um, you can be a liberal who emphasizes the Republican spirit, or you can be a Republican who um, emphasizes the liberal spirit or everything along those kinds of spectrums. Because these things, while they are oppositional, in the sense that they are competing priorities, they're both still priorities. And, um, you know, it's sort of like, think about it in your family life. Uh, it's important for one, at least one of the parents to make money. It's also important for at least one of the parents, but hopefully both of the parents to take care of the kids and spend time with the kids. Um, there's a tension there, but, there is not like, um, um, if you're, if you're leaning, if the, if you're prioritizing one over the other, you are not denying the importance of the other. Uh, and this, this story is like, you know, why I hate writing books is when you're writing, I like having written books and I like doing some of the research and stuff and, and, and all that. I just, I, the whole world process, I, it, it's draining and exhausting. But 
one of the things I hate about writing books is that when, whenever you're not writing your book, you feel guilty. And, um, it's really hard when you got, you know, a little kid or kids, um, because anytime you're not with your kids, you feel guilty. Whenever time you're ignoring your other work, you feel guilty. Um, and you end up like everything, everything is a telltale heart sort of ticking in the background. But like, if I have a book contract, that doesn't mean I don't want to do everything I can for the dispatch or everything I can for the family or everything I can for my dogs. Um, but these things are intention and tension doesn't necessarily imply, um, opposite, you know, oppositionalness or even diametrically opposed concepts. They're not, what is it? I'm going to screw it up, but you know, there's a law of the excluded middle or whatever. Um, I don't think it applies here. Um, because I, th and again, I have not looked this up in a long time. I was, it's from formal logic and it's something like every proposition is either true or false and all that. And, um, and I get, uh, I'm going to screw it up. But my only point is, is that, um, liberalism is true and Republicanism is true and they can both be true, even if they are in tension with each other in the same way that, um, liberty without order is unsustainable and order without liberty, um, is indefensible and uh um you sort of need to sort of you know monitor the levels on both to get the right balance on both um oh anyway the whole reason i brought this up is that if this does turn out to be a big free floating debate on the right um which i think would be very good um because i find this argument about republicanism um, shrinking in public life in a deleterious and negative way. Um, a much more beneficial way of thinking about things than talking about nationalism or post-liberalism or any of that garbage. Um, or, you know, what was it? Orban calls himself, uh, Ill an illiberal democracy. I just, you know, I find that stuff very, very off-putting, very un-American in the traditional sense of what America stands for. But arguing that republicanism, um, which is by its by necessity, is bound up with a certain amount of subsidiarity or localism or federalism or whatever label you want to put on it, um, and is really tightly bound up in the American or Anglo-American political tradition, that seems a just a much more productive conversation to have um than talking about emulating friggin hungary um or reinventing what it means to be a conservative so that you know we're all we're all nationalists and the problem again with nationalism is that it is conceptually at war with localism because uh if the entire society is supposed to be imbued with um the same animating spirit that to drive the whole of the nation, then what happens to community dissenting communities within the nation? Um, I like dissenting communities within the nation. I mean, I want them to dissent about relatively harmless stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, I want a utopia of many utopias as, as Nick Gillespie 
sort of argues. I can't remember the exact phrase. A utopia of utopias. You need community pluralism for communities as much as you need pluralism for individuals. And republicanism gets at that in a way that these other sort of off-the-shelf um, isms that people are grabbing don't. Um, and so I think that that's a good conversation for the right to have. It taps into a lot of ideas that people on the left can appreciate, you know, communitarianism and all that has a rich, you know, uh, history across the ideological spectrum. And it feels like a way to diffuse a lot of this stuff. And anyway, if it becomes a big argument discussion on the right, um, I think I want to commit now that the, um, the remnant will, uh, uh, welcome, uh, the various, uh, combatants and protagonists in that conversation in part because I know a few of them already and they're friends. Um, but in part because I think it's a, a, it's a worthwhile endeavor, um, for fixing a lot of what's wrong with the right. I don't want to talk too much about guns. Got a lot of feedback about the, uh, Stephen Gutowski episode. Um, I will say, I don't want to, you know, criticize any guests. That's not, you don't come on here and then get bashed by me or anything like that. And I'm not saying I, I want to bash Steve. I like Steve a lot. I respect him. He's doing great work at, um, the reload. Uh, but I gotta say, and I've, I've heard from other people and friends, um, uh, in defense of the body armor stuff. I just find the, the, the body armor argument to be very, very weak. And I don't, I don't mean this as like a purely on the merits kind of argument. I mean, as a, as a political argument, um, you know, the, the basic argument is, is that the, to, to put in as a friend of mine, put it, um, the argument for body armor is basically the argument for second amendment, which is, you know, uh, self-protection, uh, self-preservation, self-defense, and also, uh, keeping alive the possibility of, of revolution. Um, and, um, um, I get that. I get that argument for the second amendment. I do not reject that argument the way a lot of people do, um, out of hand, um, for the second amendment. I don't mean the self-defense thing. I, I believe in the self-defense thing. I mean, sort of holding open the idea that, um, that the, the, the people need the ability to keep the government from becoming tyrannical and even by using violence. I don't reject that out of hand. I think it's a very problematic thing to talk about unless everybody in the audience already agrees with you, which tends to be the case for most of the people who talk about it. Um, uh, but as a political matter, if you're, you know, sort of defending the ability to buy body armor, um, and you're not a policeman, a soldier, some sort of security, you know, professional and all the rest. Um, if you're some 18 year old, uh, who in conjunction to having body armor also has, you know, suddenly buys a whole bunch of guns on or, and bullets on his 18th birthday. Um, I just find that argument, you know, the defense of that to be really problematic, even though, yeah, there are all sorts of hypotheticals where it doesn't, you know, having body armor is actually kind of stupid and, you know, people can still shoot you in the head. And if the, 
guard at the supermarket were better trained. He would know how to have taken the guy down. I've heard these things from various people. I, I'm just not really as a sort of given the nature of what I do think is legitimately a crisis in the country. Um, it may not be a crisis in the epidemiological sense that some people claim, um, but it, it does reflect and create a kind of moral crisis and moral panic that I think is legitimate. Um, whenever kids are executed wholesale, um, getting into statistical arguments is, is, is a sure way to sort of miss the point. Um, is just a moral horror that is not tolerable for us, for a decent society. And to fall back and say, you know, to defend the ability to buy body armor, which negates the good guy with a gun retort, um, I just think is really sort of politically and morally, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying the people who are making that argument are bad people, but I think the argument itself is, uh, morally suspect in the climate that we're in. And, um, I'm not for banning body armor in part because I don't think you could. Um, and I'm sure that you, there are D DIY ways to make your own body armor that would, you know, render any ban on body armor to be, um, sort of pointless and performative. At the same time, I got no problem um, having, you know, getting body armor for somebody who's not, uh, who doesn't have an obvious need for it to be um, a red flag that could fit into the, the worldview of red flag laws. Um, speaking of red flag laws, I'm in favor of them for all the reasons David lays out. The only thing where, and I think David agrees with me on this, but is, I know Sarah would, would take a federal red flag law over no red flag laws. And I get that point. Um, but I think it's really, really important for all sorts of reasons that if there's going to be a federal, federal red flag law legislation, it should be written in a way that funds states to implement red flag laws, maybe requires them. I mean, that's a constitutional legal argument that I'm not sure works, but, um, in principle, my point is that it needs to be run at the state level. And David's made some of these points, you know, part of the problem is, is that, uh, there aren't very many federal courts. The federal courts are pretty backlogged. This is not their kind of thing to do uh, in effect, you know, the same kind of law and community outreach of, of restraining orders and that kind of thing, which is sort of the same model for red flag laws. And, um, lot, People, you know, there, there are more state and district courts um, in this country for all the obvious reasons. And people live closer to them um, on as a general rule than they live close to a federal court. Often the federal courts are only in a handful of, you know, like capital cities or big cities. And so that's one of the reasons. But I think the other reason is, is and this is a point Andy McCarthy makes, um, I just think there's there's too much distrust both earned and unearned of uh of washington among and, and particularly of republicans of democrats when it comes to writing things like uh gun related laws uh that and there are too many temptations for democrats to 
write red flag wall laws in ways that will foment resistance. I also just think at the federal level, it's just, it's, it's, it, they're too far removed from these actual communities. You need judges who work with local cops, who lo- work with local police departments. It needs to be something that is accepted by the local community. And I think that, um, uh, it would be just a huge mistake for a whole bunch of reasons to have some sort of federal, uh, red flag law administered by federal courts. Um, I also think I heard Jim Garrity making this point the other day. Uh, um, it can't just be that you go in, that the cops go in and, you know, if they get a red flag warrant, take away some, someone's gun. Um, if you think someone deserved to have their guns away, because they were talking about self-harm, which is probably going to be more, more common than, um, uh, talking about blowing up or killing people at schools. Um, but still, if you are suicidal and some, and the cops come to take away your guns because you're suicidal, uh, there needs to be some follow through on that. And I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if it's like, um, if that's wholly a family obligation to find, you know, counseling or whatever, but it seems to me like a follow up call from, the appropriate agency should be, you know, like should come with that because otherwise if you're determined to murder people, you'll find other ways to murder people. Even if they take your illegal guns, they, you might go get some illegal guns or, um, you might use your car or whatever, or a knife. Um, and if you're suicidal, having your guns taken away from you does not solve the problem of your suicidal tendencies. Um, you need, anyway, my only point is that there needs to be some sort of follow up with that. But again, I think having that kind of granularity of public policy needs to be a state and local issue. Um, and there will be some states that screw it up. There'll be some states that refuse to pass red flag laws. And then, you know, the, as, as tragic as this is, the next time there is one of these horrible, uh, crimes, I don't like to call them tragedies because people misuse tragedy. Um, you know, but, but like just these heinous, morally grotesque horrors is perpetrated these crimes um a bunch of politicians will have to say well you know we'll have to answer hey the red flag thing that you opposed would have caught this guy or should have caught could have caught this guy um explain yourself and i think you'll far you'll you'll start seeing um copycat effects i don't mean copycat effects with mass shooters sadly we're already seeing those I think we'll see copycat effects with various states as they have successes. You know, I, or I read somewhere that Florida has had, you know, has had a red flag law for a while. I knew that, but that it's been used. I think someone, someone wrote 9,000 times, but maybe it was 6,000. Either way, if, if, if forget 1%, if one of those red flags prevented a school shooting, um, that's significant. You know, I, again, I've criticized many, 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 many times this whole, if it saves just one life, it's worth it thing, because I don't think that that's a serious way of thinking about public policy, but given the relative, relatively light imposition on liberties to go through a legal process, to go to a judge, to get a, you know, a warrant, um, to remove someone's guns, 
that you can get back at a later date should you know the, the precipitating event um uh no longer be applicable yada 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 um uh that seems like a very small price for a handful of people to pay if in fact it is true that um even one mass shooting or even you know frankly you know 10 suicides were prevented with the red flag law and the 10 suicide thing probably is a low number um given how psychologically difficult it and 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 it, you know it must be to you know for a spouse to use a red flag you know to go to court and ask the court to take away someone's guns that's it's a big step and it was probably prob I'm sure in some of the cases it was unjustified and the law was abused, but my hunch is in a bunch it wasn't. And, um, and it just seems a wholly worthwhile thing to do. Um, where else to go? Oh, you know, so we were going to do the, the, the drive time, uh, thing today, but we couldn't for scheduling reasons. Um, so I'm going to save it for another time, but some, some guy like, I, I can't remember when, I don't think it was the last drive time. It had to be a couple months ago. Um, at least I mentioned on here or I was asked on here, I think it was during the drive time thing about the, um, the, Lewinsky, the Clinton scandal thing that was on FX. And I made some joke about how pissed I was that, um, they had a Ayn Rand poster on my wall and, um, and how I felt slandered or whatever, because I'm not a Randian and it's well known that I'm not a Randian. And anyway, uh, this dude writing for something called new ideal, which is a product of the Ayn Rand Institute in his name, which I gotta say sounds awfully like a pseudonym, but I guess it's, it's not. Um, this guy named Elon Journo, like, like the F Elon E L A N, um, and then Journo, uh, like the first six letters of journalist J O U R N O. It just, you know, it feels almost like, um, a character from some Randian version of Pilgrim's Progress. Anyway, he, uh, lost his fecal containment um capacity over me having fun joking around about not being a randian and and all this kind of stuff and uh wrote this just you know super earnest lighten up francis um thing about jonah goldberg ayn rand and conservative re religiosity and the art for it is of course a picture of a crucified Jesus, um, which is, you know, not perfectly appropriate for, for me. Um, anyway, we can talk about it more on the next thing, but I just thought it was, it was really funny that these, you know, self-styled champions of reason above all else, um, got their panties so bunched up, um, and about all of this. Anyway, I will, I will keep my powder dry for, for down the road, but I just didn't want people to think I was, um, 
avoiding bringing it up, even though it took this guy like two or three months to get around to his little screed. Um, other things um, uh, to talk about? Well, I don't know. We've gone the appropriate amount of time. Um, I'm still getting great feedback on the um, 500th episode. Uh, I gotta say it went better than I thought it was going to go. Um, everyone played ball. Um, it would have been great if you've all could have participated, but he selfishly got COVID. Um, and, uh, you know, the feedback from people was just really, really, really wonderful. Um, and makes me want to do contrary to my nature, um, more in-person events. Um, so, you know, we are working on that and, um, um, sort of stay tuned. I do have, I believe it's, I don't know if it's gone out today or yesterday or over the weekend, but I, uh, there's a, here's why you should, um, uh, sign up for the dispatch kind of letter going out. Um, um, actually, no, it's going to members, but here's why you're, you should sign up is going out, I think next week. So look out for that. Either way you should become a member of the dispatch. Um, um, we're doing great. Organic growth is wonderful, but we want to grow faster and bigger and do more and cooler things. And that means, um, since we don't do advertising here, um, uh, at least we don't do that sort of clickbaity sort of ruin the user experience advertising. There may come a day when we do like tasteful sponsorships and that kind of thing that, um, doesn't violate any promises we made and lets us, you know, sort of jack up revenue to, for growth and whatnot. Um, and we do, you know, we do advertising on the podcasts, um, because we just don't think they're intrusive the way sort of the clickbait programmatic ads are. Anyway, that's a discursion. Um, uh, the way we, you know, we are, we are a subscription model, uh, business and that means, uh, we need subscribers or members and we got a lot of exciting things coming, um, for members and, um, um, including more events. So if you want to hear about them, if you want to attend them, uh, become a member. And with that, I just want to say thanks again to everybody. And, uh, maybe hopefully we'll do the drive time thing next week. And, uh, I'll talk to you later. Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg. Yeah, that's me. Damn it! Who typed a question mark on the teleprompter? For the last time, anything you put on that prompter will read. <laughs>